I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Hello everybody, I can't believe I'm saying this, but welcome back to episode 4, yay! Rob, does that mean we are now consistent? Consistent is the word, consistently professional if, if you do say so. <laughs> no, we are professional. We've, we've, we've made four episodes, five if you count the other one. I count that as professional. Professionally winging it, Rob. Professionally winging it. Absolutely. But, you know, that's that's how we got to go, you know, in these unprecedented times. We've all got to wing it to some degree. And in these unprecedented times, that word should now be banned. How are you doing? How is working from home going? It's all right. I'm kind of falling into the flow a little bit of it now. I think when we recorded the last one, it was maybe, I don't know, it was, see, this is the other thing. I have no concept of time. It was maybe a few weeks ago and it it kind of still felt a bit new. Uh, I think now it's not so bad. I'm kind of a bit more used to it. I'm a bit more regimented with my time, trying to go out a little bit more. And I managed to source Ring Fit Adventure for the Nintendo Switch from Germany. So I'm happy after all this time, been searching for it for so long. And I finally acquired it, so now I can stay fit inside. So no, I'm good. I'm feeling feeling good. I'm glad you got something that would make you happy. I decided I would take up embroidery, and I went through the trouble of taking ages to find the perfect beginner's kit. Got it, arrived about two weeks later. I was all excited for it. I had a whole weekend dedicated to doing it. Then arrived the instructions were Mandarin, and the hoop <laughs> in which the fabric sits in was really, really crap and wouldn't stay together. And so, you know, oh, no. first world problems. First world problems. Yeah, I know. yeah, true first world problems. Well, I mean, like I say, I had to wait weeks to try and source this thing and end up having to buy it from Germany because I couldn't get it anywhere else in the UK. And it's just, you know, COVID 19 is one thing, but not being able to properly source video games and embroidery kits is a whole nother thing. I know. Life life is ruined. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like as if it isn't difficult enough. But aside from all that, uh, making life a little bit less difficult, hopefully, um, who have we got up now on episode number four, Rob? We've got a really interesting episode lined up. I mean, I would hope every episode is interesting, but a particularly good one this week. We have two members of the Resident Life team up in Edinburgh, which is somewhere that I'm a big fan of, and Scotland is obviously a beautiful country. So we have Cheryl and Chris with us today, Chris Tucker and Cheryl Hutton, talking to us about their experiences with Res Life programs up in Edinburgh. But not just that, but also discussing the subject of students as staff, which is a really interesting subject. It's something that Obviously, in the education sector in universities, we see a lot of we see a lot of students moving on after their degrees to work, but also during their degrees. We had a really interesting discussion about their own experiences with the Race Life program in Edinburgh, but also things on recruitment, on pay, on the academic journey, as long as the personal journey as well. So it was a really in-depth conversation about the experiences of students as staff members. And both Cheryl and Chris are, are veterans of the game, very well versed in everything and have got an amazing program up there. So it was really interesting to hear their thoughts on it all and and to have such an engaging discussion on what is a a really engaging topic especially considering that i think when we come out of all of this we're going to need our student staff more so than ever absolutely so without further ado let's get stuck in and listen to what they had to say 
Welcome everyone to episode number four of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. We are delighted to welcome Cheryl Hutton and Christopher Tucker from the University of Edinburgh to our next episode, where we will be discussing the brilliant topic of students as staff. Some background information, Cheryl has been working in higher education for over 10 years. She currently works as the Senior Residence Life Coordinator in the University of Edinburgh's award-winning, if not famous, Resident Life Department and has worked there since 2014. She also held the role of Assistant Student Services Manager at Queen's University, Bader International Study Centre, and also worked as a Student Liaison Officer at UCLan. No stranger to being a student herself, Cheryl holds not one but two Master Degrees, most recently achieving the MA in Student Affairs and Higher Education from ARU, and she also holds a Master's Degree in Law from UCLan, as well as a Postgrad Certificate in Counselling and Mentoring Effective Learning. She's also no stranger to the higher education conference circuit, having spoken at numerous conferences, including Amashi, Azra and Cubo. Joining us as well is the wonderful Christopher Tucker. He is currently the Director of Residence Life at the University of Edinburgh too, having been in post since June 2019. He joined the Edinburgh team from the University of Sussex, where he spent over four years as their Head of Campus and Residential Support and a further 12 years as their Residential Support Manager. Chris holds numerous qualifications, including an MDIP in mental health with a focus on behaviour intervention models and a postgrad certificate in mental health and mental health management, both from the University of Brighton. He also holds a master's degree in mediation and conflict resolution studies from UCL. It is safe to say that Chris is well known within the sector as the person to guide and inform you on the often difficult and hard to navigate situations which can arise when working in residence life and student accommodation. Christopher, Cheryl, we are not worthy. Welcome very much to the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. We're so excited to have you on board, particularly during these challenging times. Before we get stuck into our topic, it would be remiss of me not to say, given what's happening around the world and the little thing called COVID-19, how are you both doing and how are your teams up in Edinburgh? Today is a day where I get to say I am good. <laughs> um, I think, like everybody at the moment, we're definitely on a bit of an emotional roller coaster, whether that be in our professional lives, moving all of our service to online and virtual programming and coming used to new technologies, or whether that's in our personal lives and getting used to lockdown and being at home and having concerns about loved ones. Um, but overall, um, today is a good day. I think it's very much a case of taking each day as it comes and being grateful for the situation um, that I'm in, which is quite fortunate in that everybody I care for as well. And I actually couldn't be prouder of the team that we have up here at Edinburgh for the, the work that they've done in the last few weeks. Pretty well put, I think, considering everything. It sounds pretty much the same for for all of us. It's such a strange time. And I'm slightly disappointed that we probably only got about 90 seconds in before we mentioned COVID-19. But there we are. I suppose it is very apt of the time. How about you, Chris? How are you doing? I think like everyone else, it's all uh, quite relative at the moment when, when, you, when you say, are, you know, are people okay? Well, we're all, all you know, struggling and managing and uh, uh, hopefully uh, practicing self-care. And, and that's the, the thing we've been really preaching to our team. Everyone has their own anxiety around this. And I, I, I kind of refer to it as the, the creeping crisis, uh, is that it, it feels like it kind of keeps stepping closer towards you. And uh, it's, 
you know, and unlike crises of the past, I think especially in residential life, um, we can't run towards this one. We, we, we actually have to think of different models and stepping away from it. So that's what we've been doing a lot of with, uh, with our team is, is finding out how we can still provide support and build communities uh, against our usual model of running towards the crises. And so that's been the, the, the biggest challenge. But, you know, every day, and it is a, it is a marathon and not a sprint. And I think it's a, every day is, is, is something that everyone should be proud of that they've got, uh, gotten through. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of thing that we're really trying to preach to our teams, ourselves, and be, be kind to yourself, you know, uh, those kind of mantras. But, but yeah, that's, that's how we're focusing on it. And, and as far as uh, more specifically for our kind of uh, protocols and processes, we're, we're really trying to reach out. And we, we think students, you know, might be suffering from some quite serious mental health issues, feeling lonely, isolated over the next few weeks. And so we're, we're just looking at ways how we can um, contact them and be in touch with them so they, they, they know we're here and they feel supported. I think, Christopher, you actually describe it really poetically, if you don't mind me saying. Um, I like the way you describe it as this kind of creeping, almost experience. And you're right, it, it isn't a sprint, it is a marathon. Before we kind of go into the details, I'm sure you've made lots of adjustments to the program that you offer. You've definitely moved to online virtual programming, which I'll be aware of, and we can talk more a little bit later on. Cheryl, would you mind, given that you've worked at the University of Edinburgh since 2014, would you mind sharing with us um, the history of the department in Edinburgh and, and how it came to be and essentially the makeup of the department? For as long as the University of Edinburgh has had accommodation, there has been a very discreet form of residence life. There's been a wardenial structure for a considerable number of years, so it's quite historic with the university. But then in 2008, so about six years before I joined, the Director of Accommodation, Catering and Events appointed um, a Director of Residence Life and they recruited somebody from the United States to come over to Edinburgh and help set up a residence life um, department, as it more commonly now is known, and very much the structure look into what is done in the US. So the residence life coordinator at the time, along with the director, very much implemented the wardens and built upon the residence assistance that we have here at Edinburgh. And since then, the department has just grown and grown and grown. We're now, we now have four residence life coordinators, four assistant residence life coordinators, 26 wardens, um, and 242 resident assistants. So a considerably large team. And then most recently, we recruited a residence life coordinator mental health support who has a very unique um, background working in the NHS and is able to provide more specific mental health support to students in need of that. When we're thinking about students as staff, our 240 plus resident assistants are that. We have those on a ratio of one resident assistant to 40 students in all of our accommodation. Um, and they very much are at the forefront of being our front line in building community, creating a home away from home, and being that point of contact for students who are coming from all over the world to start their university degrees. 
I was just going to say, Cheryl, I think the the ratio, and I'm glad that you picked up on that. That was my next question. That is an enviable ratio to have. I think in terms of residence life, if you work in the UK and residence life, the University of Edinburgh and a few others are kind of seen as one of the departments and the universities to look to if you want to find out what best practice really looks like and how to run an excellent programme and how to implement that. Was it always that way? Was it always such a good ratio or did it take time to get to that? Um, it absolutely took time. I think, you know, as I've explained, there's been significant growth in our department over the last 12 years, but that is 12 years that very much did start with one coordinator with 60 resident assistants and with a handful of wardens and even when I started in 2014 we at that point had 120 resident assistants Um, so even in the last six years it has taken us that time to really build upon what we have it absolutely does start small and we have been very fortunate that the director of accommodation catering events Richard Kington who just retired last week has always been a huge advocate and extremely supportive of residence life as a department he has been very invested in researching what happens in the united states what happens in australia he is always at conferences and doing the conference circuit and has been hugely supportive in helping us continue to grow and expand the work that we've done yeah, Richard is really well known within the sector and within, um, I guess, the resident life uh, circuit and those who work in student accommodation. So he has contributed a huge amount to the sector. And um, I'm sure you had a great send off for him last week, no doubt. Yeah, no, no sadly, Richard left us. Um, we, we had all kinds of plans about uh, nice dinners out and then, you know, uh, giving him a, a little bit of a send off. And, and sadly, we, you know, we're going to have to postpone that until after this crisis is over a bit. But he, he lives locally, so it's not like he's going to disappear. And he is still uh, made himself available to us if we need advice or, or to, to touch base with, uh, you know, uh, throughout the, uh, the rest of the uh, next couple of months. He definitely deserves a good send off. Christopher, obviously you are, you're not so much new to the university anymore. You're in post since last June. What was your perception of residence life at Edinburgh? And what made you come join the university? Well, uh, it's it's always a, a funny thing with, with, with Richard and I, because I, I know um, sometimes he likes to think that, uh, that, you know, residence life started at the University of Edinburgh, but uh, we, we started our program down at Sussex in 19, or sorry, 2002. Uh, so we were kind of, you know, we were never nearly as well resourced or, you know, uh, uh, backed, uh, you know, but, but, you know, we had a nice little operation going there and built up a, one of the, what I'm assuming is the first residential life programs, if I were to be so bold. And, um, and yeah, so, so, uh, but I'd always kept an eye on University of Edinburgh because I knew, I, I'd, I'd known Cheryl in the past and I knew they had really good staff here and they're really well resourced. And I'd, I'd been at Sussex for, for 16 some odd years at that time. So it just made perfect sense kind of for, you know, to bring my skills, uh, that I've been working on for the past uh, number of years and, and, and engage. And I was excited about the, the project, the, the resource at our disposal, uh, you know, even working with, you know, working with Cheryl. I, I'd known knew her previously so um yeah so so it was it was really exciting and i'm the funny thing is even through this crisis i'm still still excited about being here so uh i'm sure that'll that'll fade won't it cheryl but um hopefully hopefully not so i'm really 
enjoying it. Uh, I think it's probably an accurate statement when you say that, you know, you started Res Life in 2002 and it would have been one of the probably first Res Life departments in the UK because it is so new and it is inherently a North American concept. Moving on to kind of the main topic that we have you guys on today for around recruiting students and staff. Obviously, recruiting students to undertake staff positions or RA type positions. What did that look like in 2002 and what does that look like now in Edinburgh? Really, I mean, I, I've come into, and, and, and Cheryl can expand on, on this, uh, they already had a fantastic recruitment model uh, out there. Um, you know, I brought a few things with me that we've tried out this year, such as uh, group interviews. So we've done a number of group interviews, largely asking, uh, I think one was a lifeboat where you, it's more of a, a kind of a role play and you decide who needs to stay in the lifeboat and who stays out and it's just to see group dynamics. Uh, the other one that we added where um, everyone would facilitate a, a question and most of them are quite provocative and they weren't necessarily related to university life or living. Um, but it was just to really create discussion and debate within their, uh, their group interview. And so each person would facilitate or mediate that. And then we have a number of people around just to, uh, look at set criteria we're looking for, looking at people who communicate more, who try to pull information out of the quieter people in the group. So, um, so that was a little addition uh, this year and they were still getting feedback on that and how that worked. But, um, uh, Cheryl might be able to expand a bit more on, on, uh, some of the other processes. Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, we started with really um, tailoring the role description and then making the most of our current staff and ensuring that it is a role that they're proud of and a role that they're willing to share with their classmates, their fellow students, people in their clubs and societies. And then we have quite a huge marketing piece as our sort of first real push on recruitment that's really multifaceted and supported by schools and our students association students union and promoted it on screens posters um a lot of the academic schools are really supportive in allowing us to go and take two minutes of their lectures to just do a shout out about the RA role in the recruitment process um plastered all over social media and our accommodation as well and then we move into a sort of three-stage application and interview process. So the first part is very much um, an online application that takes all of the usual basic details about the person and their experience, but then asks really specific questions around how they would build community. And also because quite a big part of the role is around programming, given as an idea of an event that they might like to host and why um, and what attracts them to the post. This year, for the first time, we introduced the second stage, which Christopher's mentioned, which has been some group assessments. So that's been quite new to us and an area that previously we've shied away from because we haven't quite known how to manage such large groups. But initial feedback from the first few sessions that have happened has been really positive, which is good. And then we have an in-person interview. So we have panels of two wardens interviewing the candidates, asking a set of four questions, again, assessing based on the different role descriptions and criteria and our core competencies, how well they would doing the role and what experience they have to bring. It sounds as well like you have quite a, a huge number of people applying as well. And I suppose this is something that has 
grown over time and something that uh, takes a lot of investment and time but i'm really interested to find out how how you how you do in terms of your applicant numbers it sounds like with the amount of students you have working as staff members that your application numbers must be immense yeah we've been really lucky um so far and it's it's something that we've been concerned about or have a consideration about each year as you know if we get more property or more numbers and need more ras are we always going to get the number of applicants we need and the quality of applicants that we need um but so far we always have sufficient number of successful candidates to move to interview stage and for the last few years at least we've always reopened with a wait list so once we've offered successful candidates we've had a small wait list of people who have been ready to backfill or jump into spaces that become available last minute due to personal circumstances or throughout the year so it's not a challenge we've had and I think a lot of that so far has been down to the experience that students in our accommodation have so they are kind of inspired or aspire to the role themselves. There are also lots of students at the University of Edinburgh who are looking for part-time opportunities or leadership skill development Um, and we also manage to retain between 50 and 60 percent of our RAs each year as returning RAs to sort of build upon the team as well. I was just going to add, I think one of the things that we're, you know, I'm really keen to look at this year, especially because we've got all this fantastic work going on around recruitment. And then obviously when they get in post and when we do assessments around their abilities and how they've done, I'm, I'm really keen to see if there's any correlation to how well they do in interviews versus how they, well they do in the role. And so that's something we'll, we'll start to look into the numbers on that may impact on how we recruit in future. It would also be really interesting to look at whether there's a correlation, if you haven't already, between their performance in the role and their performance in their degree, because one would imagine it giving them a sense of community at your institution. So that's certainly something I experienced as a student once I, I felt part of the university. The academic sort of followed naturally because I, I relaxed into it. So it'd be interesting to, to even go that far. I, I, I can only speak anecdotally, uh, but I, uh, when I was an RA many years ago, you know, I did much better in my coursework uh, when I was an RA and I had those additional responsibilities than when I didn't and I was left to my own devices. So. I mean, that would be a really interesting piece of research for someone to undertake and um, a potential presentation at a conference coming to a conference near you. Yeah, we have done a piece of research um, previously year on year where we've measured the sort of success of students living in our accommodation degree attainment or progression compared to those who live outside of our accommodation and one of the unique circumstances that the RAs are in is that they tend to live in our accommodation for two, three, maybe four years depending on the length of their studies as well because degrees up here in Scotland are four years long so sometimes they might have lived with us as a first year student and then become an RA for their second, third and fourth year. I was just going to say that you mentioned, Cheryl, the percentage of students who you retain as RAs for the following year. That's that's a really impressive stat. 
and clearly down to the support that you as a team give to resident assistants and obviously the role itself and the training that's provided. In terms of RA compensation, I've seen multiple ways of compensating compensating RAs, either providing free accommodation or accommodation and payment or only payment. How does it work in Edinburgh? What can an RA expect to receive? So um, resident assistants here receive 75% discount on their accommodation. Um, and if they're in cases accommodation, that includes 75% discount on catering. Um, so that's the remuneration they get as direct remuneration for their role. We then also have a number of personal development opportunities, obviously throughout their usual training. But the university also has a scheme called the Edinburgh Award, which is a personal development and progression piece of work that resident assistants do over the course of the year and get recognition to go on their here, so their higher education achievement records. And obviously then, you know, you've done a a comprehensive recruitment process. It's no mean feat to recruit 242 resident assistants. That must must take a considerable amount of time. What kind of training then do do successful RAs undertake? We do an entire week's worth of training. And it's it's interesting because this stuff uh, where Shale and I are going over at the moment and very much trying to... um go back to fundamentals of, of res life and i think you know sometimes and uh my you know my team back at sussex was the, was the same because you you just seem to be jumping towards crises from crises and uh, uh just trying to you know put the sandbags down and uh protect yourself and so it's it's hard to kind of like think in a forward fashion and sometimes you lose portions of the res life model and so i, th- I think you know we're very much of the mind we, we really want to strip it back and go around the fundamentals and really focus on the basics um of, of res life you know which is, is largely going to be welfare and advice uh, within boundaries it's going to be uh, people engaging in mediation conflict resolution uh signposting uh helping with the development this you know student development theory and you know underpinning the social programming and really just get the, the actual core portions of our service and really focusing on that make sure everyone's educated into the model uh whether you call it a wellness wheel or you know you're looking at maslow's hierarchy of needs whatever uh I, I think it's just really important that we go back to why we do what we do and so we're really taking a long hard look at that at the moment with our ras as well the training really starts once they're appointed to the role so throughout the summer before they join us for their week of training we have a really um, extensive online module that they complete to start laying some of foundations and the basics predominantly around the student development theory and the education piece so that when we can get to the in-person sessions obviously there are challenges with such large numbers of group size but we can try and make those as interactive and meaningful as possible and then we also move the trade in from a central delivery to site-specific information that's then delivered by their wardens and their property managers and then we have follow-up training sessions throughout the year further expanding on different needs. So more training in October, more training in February. And one of the other areas that we've been really developing over the last two or three years with the Students Association and with the University and Sports Union has been ensuring that all of our resident assistants have been trained in bystander intervention training so that we can have a really positive impact, not only in our residential community, but within the university community as well. Just to, to add to, to that list of, of things, we've, um, you know, having um, uh, Haley Thompson as our um, 
residential uh, life mental health coordinator. You know, we're, we're really keen to bring as much training in-house as possible. Uh, I, I'm a big firm believer that your, your experts usually lie uh, in-house. I mean, we're, we're embarrassed with riches in that I, I've got a former psychiatric nurse working uh, with me. I've got a background in mental health. Cheryl's got a background in, in counseling and, th- and therapy. And so, you know, we, we, we're really lucky in that regard, but we're trying to develop as much internal training as, as possible because we just feel it, it, and there's some evidence behind this where it, it actually, you know, the, the, the main takeaways you want from uh, mental health training is, is escalation protocols, is what do I do? What do I say? Where are my boundaries? How quickly do I need to let someone know? Um, we're less concerned with them knowing if someone's bipolar, or if they've got uh, uh, some other kind of mental health issue. So we really try to focus on behaviors. But so we've done a lot of uh, uh, training on that and trying to develop that training further. I think that's a fantastic training program that you guys put together. And I really love in particular that you have the education piece as well, because I think that's missed quite often in lots of like, you know, student role training and also those who are in student face and full time positions like we are throughout the sector. And I think lots of people, unfortunately, don't have access to that information or are not aware of that kind of educational information, how useful it can be. You know, when you talk about student development theory and how that can be really relevant to your role and actually open your eyes to a whole lot of ways in which students learn and how they become who they are at university. So it is really refreshing to hear that. And that kind of like speaks to me quite a bit. Given the amount of RAs that you have, and obviously you've got a huge team, as you mentioned, to support those resident assistants, what happens when it doesn't work out? Obviously, there are probably times when some students do an amazing RA interview and they're fantastic in the training and you think they're going to be the star this year. What happens when it doesn't work out? What are the kind of challenges that you see with students adjusting to their roles as RAs? One of my philosophies about um, uh, you know, residential assistants, advisors, whatever whatever the moniker you use uh, in their in their application, it's part of the student development uh, process. And uh, many of these students come to us; they may have no work experience or, or none to speak of. Uh, Maybe their first role. Uh, it's not a job. Uh, it must be the first role. And so some of that is 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 training and educating and building someone up. And and not everyone will make it through the year and that we may have to take further action and we've got a whole process of that but everything's about educating and trying to get them up do what needs to be done and so um and i say this often in our training is that we are educators uh and and so and the the residential assistant team are part of that education process and so we, we want to teach them, you know, uh, loads of skills within the role, but also skills of being accountable, writing reports, making sure they're in a timely manner, you know, and they've got a number of protocols they have to follow, because although it may be classified as a volunteer post, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of volunteer posts that have a very, you know, serious and direct uh, a support mechanism for people. And this is one of them. So so we really try to focus as an educational piece. I like that you use the term or the phrase, we are educators. It's not a phrase that I hear often in the UK something that I hear quite a lot from those who have worked and do work or trained in North America and I certainly want to see more of that happening in the UK because we certainly are educators especially those who are in institutions um, and student-based positions you have a huge role in educating young people and getting the best from them and helping them become the best they can be. Adding on to what Christopher said but it, it is really a learning opportunity for the resident assistants and some of the elements we do in initial training where we're really trying to help them with time management and prioritization to us they are first and foremost the students so that academics are absolutely their first priority when they're here at the university 
in addition to obviously their well-being and health but we want to ensure that we're able to teach them how to manage these things and to be honest if they are struggling or if they need extra support and I think we're quite fortunate in having the wardens in their position to line manage the resident assistants and although they have varying sizes of teams between sort of four and 14 resident assistants that they're responsible for, they're really able to give them that one-on-one support and development that different individuals will need. And equally, we do use our returning RAs to be buddies quite a lot to new RAs to really help them grow and develop and navigate their first year as an RA and juggling different responsibilities. I suppose as well, that's where a lot of the student development theory comes in. That's why it's so nice to see it embedded in a programme like yours, because, as you said, their their academic journey is crucial. It's why they're at university, but also it's acknowledging that interplay between everything that you guys do and everything you see with your student staff members combined with their academic side. So I guess that's really one of the, the key differences when you're hiring students realistically because it's it represents something wider than just a staff to staff relationship you are kind of taking them on an educational journey both personally and professionally but also on their academics as well and it makes so much sense to see that theory embedded and we have discussed this before obviously Rebecca and I have had this chat and partly why we want to do this podcast is to highlight people doing that because so much theory is lost in the UK sometimes and it's nice that you've brought in so much from the US and Australia and I guess you can really see the the benefit from that in embedding something like that because you get a more well-rounded member of staff by doing that. Yeah and, and I mean one of the really big challenges when I kind of first started in, in Res Life in the UK was I, I didn't want it to be an American model. You know, I, I was really keen that it was a British sensibilities. You know, I, I'm sure those of you who travel to the States, um, it can be very rah-rah and kind of very in your face and kind of dragging students out of the room to go to social programs. Um, you know, that that's the culture. That was a culture back when I was uh, working there. And I, I, I knew immediately that that wouldn't necessarily suit a, a, a British market or a British, uh, you know, a student body. Uh, so we very much tailored it towards the, the population and I say so 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 I do think the uh, the UK models are um, uh, you know much different and and, and, and more culturally uh, uh, based but what I would say and, and going about that student development theory I, I think we can't forget that that is that's the, that's the that's the research base that's the evidence base for everything we do and I know there's there's some institutions where they they might have slapped a name residence life on it but uh, you know and, I, and there's no issue with that but they need to go back and, and and do their due diligence and study what the what the process is and what the the research says and what the evidence says because I, I think that's when you get into trouble you you can fall back on that, that that base of knowledge now if you can hear some clapping in the background it's because it's just gone 8 p.m and it is the clap for carers which is taking place because obviously we scheduled it about five or six weeks ago before before clap for carers so i'm just going to do my little clap live on the podcast because uh, my husband does work for the nhs and i can see him right now outside the front door Woo, the NHS and everybody else who are key workers. Thank you, student accommodation staff who are key workers as well. Thank you, NHS and key workers. 
my 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 neighbors play their bagpipes uh, in the front garden usually, but they're not out tonight. So they're not out tonight. So oh wow! Oh, amazing! We've never had bagpipes in the podcast. <laughs> I I keep threatening to take my ukulele out, but I don't think anybody will be happy. There's a first time for everything. We won't say no to ukulele on the podcast. You're free to come on any time and practice. <laughs> I was going to say, we've had people record intros. We could have something new. We could have a different intro each week on your ukulele. Um, just going back there to some of the points that you, um, th- some of the points that you made, Christopher, around the evidence base. And um, is there any other particular evidence that you are aware of that actually you have come across? And I know I'm putting you on the spot here. I, in addition to student development theory, that you think is really key for res life professionals or people who are working with young resident assistants or any student um, staff role that you think is invaluable to know about and to kind of refer to. Two biggest things that we've really focused on this year, and especially having the resource of a mental health coordinator, is um, early intervention. I mean, all the evidence points towards early intervention. So the sooner you know uh, about things, the better uh, you can engage. So your reporting mechanisms need to be really strong. Uh, I, I really preach to my team, you know, someone being homesick, someone having multiple lockouts during a, a week, uh, someone maybe uh, who, who hadn't bathed or uh, hadn't, hadn't been out of the room for some time. All those little nuggets of information, and uh, they need to make sure and get back to, to a group of people that can assess those. So we're really keen, whether it's our, our cleaning staff, our community support team, which is our, our version of security, uh, operations managers, porters, uh, catering assistants. Uh, you know, they might have little bits of information. We just need to make sure and we collect them so we can provide that early intervention. So we very much are operating towards a behavioral intervention model, uh, which is uh, really big in North America and Australia. It's a bit heavy-handed on the... Uh, you know, threat assessment part of that, which thankfully we don't have those the same concerns. But really, it's it's, it's focusing on be- behaviors. You know, when we're talking about welfare, mental health, or even someone who is a, a flatmate dispute, the earlier we can get that information, the earlier we can respond and engage and support and signpost, the the, the better. And so I, I think it's really about that push to collate that information and make sure that we risk assess that uh, through you know a pr- appropriate protocols. And out of curiosity, um, how, Christopher, do you collect that information? Is it something that, you know, it, it's part of the role of everybody in the department to log it somewhere? Do you have weekly meetings to discuss certain cases? How is that information collated and how do you kind of form a picture of what's happening in your communities? Yeah, we, we, we've got some software that we do this with uh, that we're still working with to see what its capabilities are and what we can do with it and how we can expand it. I, I won't name any names. I know there's some other companies out there doing some incident reporting modules. I'd used one in the past uh, of, a, of a different company uh, that I won't name. But yeah, it's, 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 it's software reporting modules. Uh, you know, many years ago, we did the uh, Microsoft Word uh, incident reports and they all sent and collated and kept in a file and processed that way. But uh, I would highly recommend if you can afford it, if you've got the capability, if you've got existing software, a, a centralized reporting system. So you, you can actually start looking at the data, uh, going through trends and things like that and seeing where you might have spikes of certain types of uh, wellness or, or people are in distress. And we really much... Uh, categorize it as behaviors so we're again we're not diagnosing what is a witness behavior and how do you uh, capture that information and then we assess it centrally i'm also really interested cheryl from a point of view of engaging students because with the amount of students that you have as staff i can imagine that that is a big challenge obviously it sounds like the program is pretty strong in doing that in in of itself but 
how do you get students to engage with this idea of essentially learning the theory behind their own development? Because that that's sort of somewhat meta. And how do you kind of get students who are already really busy, already really stacked in their mind to take that and go, okay, I, I really want to do this job. But not only that, I want to invest time into learning about my own journey and others and my peers. How, how do you go about doing that? Where does that motivation and training come in? I think it's really a combination approach. I think it takes a lot of really good role modeling from some of the resident assistants who have really taken the role and made it their own when they're with us. So they're our biggest advocates in ensuring that they practice what they preach, they show the reason why the role is important to them. Equally with our central team and with our wardens, ensuring that education and motivation and passion comes from us as well. Because if we feel like we don't have a lot of time or we don't care about it, other people aren't going to build upon that. Um, we really also try to do it quite subtly. So we try to wait weave through a thread in all of the training and in all of the learning on the role experiences that people have as to why it is important so that if it is a kitchen mediation that they're running or it's a program that they're hosting they know what part of student development theory fits into that and how overall the ultimate goal is to create a, a sense of belonging and a sense of community and the university more widely has recently taken a real look at sense of belonging across the university and separated out into different strands of place the university as a whole the classroom and ensuring that there's again that sense of belonging and pride in the work that students are doing at the university so I think part of being a member of the University of Edinburgh community first and foremost is learning that and learning why their place is here and we're able to build upon that in a residential environment as well. I would imagine um, that given all the work that you do and the work that you just described that the University of Edinburgh is undertaking about what does belonging to the university look like and feel like and what is pride like a huge amount of that happens as we know in the halls of residence and due to the work that you and your teams do so I would expect that the work that you do by your department and all as you as individuals and of course the students is really well valued by the university and the VC and the senior management there how how is it perceived how is it valued is it something that's really cherished amongst the university the reception that I've received uh, amongst academics, amongst uh, professional services centrally, uh, such as you know the counselling team, Andy Shanks, our director of uh, of uh, wellbeing and student support, Gavin Douglas, all of them have been completely open and and, and accepting and and really uh, excited about any new ideas we've brought to the table and 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 wanted to talk about any challenges we faced, any coordination of of support. So uh, you know, as a new person here at the University of Edinburgh, I can't embarrass with the, the level of, of, of communication and engagement that we've had from, from academics throughout different schools uh, to, to the central uh, professional services. So um, within this past year, I've been really impressed with the entire operation and how willing they are to look at change and uh, make it Just accordingly. Build upon the more historic and longer term stuff. We have always, since I've been here, had an extremely good relationship with all of our professional services colleagues. 
the student counselling team who we work really closely with, the chaplaincy, as um, Christopher mentioned, the director of wellbeing. We also connect regularly with student support officers within schools, but it is an ongoing area and I'm sure many other people across the sector experience it as well in that we do have a lot of support from academics who know about us, but there are still a large number of academics who maybe don't know about us or don't quite understand that role. And there's two ways in that a lot of people at the university feel reassured or relieved if they have a student they're concerned about who lives in our accommodation because they know that after five o'clock and night times and weekends there's still somebody there to look out for them and to support them and to guide them but it would be naive of us to say that everybody knows of us and holds us highly there are certainly a large number of people that do but always work to be done in that area it sounds though that you have a a reputation which is really well valued and it's something that is so precious to have uh, just from speaking to other people in the sector and some experiences in institutions I've worked in it's not always necessarily the case and I sort of wonder if it's the it's often for me I find it's the effectiveness yes of the training and of the staff involved but it's it's actually then the students that tend to carry the message themselves that kind of gets this across to people I find that there are some things where I can spend my time trying to reiterate a point or a particular thing to other staff members but it's when there's sort of a student-led movement or a student-led group that really takes that and has ownership of something that it then seems to gain more traction and I think this is the beauty of of, of a program like yours it, it the size of it allows that traction to come from the students eventually themselves and essentially they're the drivers for the program's own success really that's not of course to take away from any of you two or your staff but the students are, are ultimately the, the focus and the core and, and they be they end up being the ones who really portray what the program is all about I suppose and 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 represent everything that you've tried to put together a lot of it's about having the right kind of language and so since I've been in the UK some 26 odd years um, you know I, I remember doing my first kind of training session on social programming for Unipol back in uh, I tell old man stories now around 98 99 I think I did one in, in London and everyone kind of walked out as if I was speaking a, a different language and, and wondering why would we do a social program and and you know so the language changed over the years and I think it's uh, you know for us now especially when we're dealing with crises it's having the language and you know even I I've been learning new terms that that are really helpful about like non-clinical interventions, you know, is being a a kind of a well researched and evidence process that people like ourselves do on a daily basis. We just need a a little bit of tweaking and and, and training around. So, uh, you know, those, those type type of term, that type of terminology is really useful in explaining who we are and what we do and how we engage and how we support and how we give advice. And so, so yeah, so every day finding new language to describe what we do that will help us when we engage with, with academics, with professional services, with other parts of the university. For a very brief second, Christopher, when you were talking about language, I thought you were going to talk about the language that students use that we don't understand, so ter- certain terminology. Um, and I was like, he's going to say some really cool things around what students are saying and the lingo that you're learning. 
No, I do. I, I do feel really old because I keep the, there's new software applications like like TikTok and all these things, and now I feel like eighty because uh, I used to be really down with all these social media uh, apps and all those sorts of things. So uh, I'm constantly asking Cheryl and, and Haley and other people in the office. I was like, what's what's a TikTok? Uh, I don't understand TikTok. I do not understand TikTok. We've had this discussion before as well, haven't we, Rebecca? I just I don't get it. I don't understand. <laughs> A discussion on TikTok um, features in nearly every episode that we do. It's kind of becoming our thing. <laughs> it's a recurring theme, TikTok. So I'm going to ask you a few final questions because I'm conscious of time. Cheryl, what would you say is the biggest challenge in hiring students to become staff and members of your team? I would say that the hiring process isn't the challenge, but the challenge is having the students fully understand what the job role entails. Um, I think a lot of us can account for the fact that quite often what you read on paper and what you think your own skills and abilities maybe are are not always what it turns out to be in practice. So I think the biggest challenge is ensuring that we educate and inform our candidates as well as possible about what the role actually is. I, I think that summed it up pretty well. It's it, it's one of those like as I said earlier, it's always that balance. You know, we we used to call them uh, paraprofessionals uh, in the states. I don't know if they still use that phrase, uh, but when I was a paraprofessional, so they, uh, my team can't get a, a, away without hearing about my RA days. But when I was a paraprofessional and saying it, it was it was that balance between you did sit between kind of staff and students and you had a role and a function and, and a thing to fulfill um, but you were also trying to manage being friends and relationships and people in your, your flat and so it's the same challenge as it was it was then is, is, is how do you, you manage a live-in role have a personal life and know when to take which hat off and take which hat on as you're also trying to write incident reports, possibly uh, in some places, you know, prepared uh, disciplinary uh, reports and provide welfare and, and student advice. And it's a constant moving feast of, uh, of, of balancing those things. And it is part art and part science uh, in doing that. So, so it's still the same challenges over the years. Yeah, it's a real fine line trying to balance all that. I think, um, you know, adding to what Cheryl had said that a lot of students will apply for these positions and think, oh, I'm just going to organize parties and have a great time and get a budget. And it's, and it's really not that at all. There's elements of it, but not to the extent of what they think. Is there anything that you see in the sector, Christopher, where you think, you know, people are going wrong? Um, if you were to give people like a couple of tips about really building a strong um, cohort of student RAs or student staff members, what would be your like top three tips? Harping back to your RA days because you love talking about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, uh, tips. I what I, what I what I would say what's really important. And I've I've seen models, uh, you know, residence life models all across the UK, all across the world, uh, uh, varying degrees of, of 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 organization. What tends to make them successful is strong management. Is having that centralized person that is managing it completely as their only job. I think when 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 groups or teams get in in trouble it's usually when it's a, a side job for someone when you have someone who's a operations manager and they do uh, a residence life because i think the, the people who work in residence life realize that you know sometimes the smallest case can end up taking you all week depending on how it metastasizes or, or changes or develops or grows legs it, it really is a a full-time post uh and to manage those ras and their welfare and their support and their needs and and also hold them to account uh hold them to accountability for their their, their posts um you know I, I think those are all the signs of a good 
a residence life scheme that will, will will carry on when they've got good management structures, when they've got you know resources are are, are almost secondary to if you have a good uh, a management team, clear boundaries and an idea of what your team's supposed to do and what they don't do. Uh, so you don't you avoid mission creep, and I, I think that's really the key factors in running a, a good res life team. The structure is is somewhat of a, a of a, a subjective idea. It's more of how well that's managed and and how well their roles are defined. Yeah, I think that's really really great um, feedback and advice. It's interesting when you speak about you know how often one student case can take up your entire week, um, and everything else gets pushed to one side. We've all seen that time and time again. Um, I was doing some an interview last night as part of my own master's research, and I was talking to somebody who works in the PBSA sector, and their role primarily is to manage a building. But actually, they say increasingly they're doing more and more pastoral stuff, and that's just not recognised in the PBSA sector, and that they have had to deal with student cases that's taken up a week or two weeks of their time while their boss in a head office is saying why aren't you doing why aren't you selling rooms and why aren't you doing this and why aren't you collecting debt but actually in that moment what's important is, is dealing with that student case and their welfare and ensuring they're appropriately signposted to the right services. Because I started out in the private sector. I started out uh, Shaftesbury Student Housing, which I think is sanctuary now in London. So yeah, I know all the pressures of, of the private institutions. And, and my heart goes out to many of, of, of you because you, you don't necessarily have all the resources that we have, you know, living and working in a university. So uh, so I, I know it's particularly problematic and you're holding a lot of responsibility to yourselves at times, you know, without a counseling team, without a expanse of resources behind you. So I, I've got a lot of uh, care and sympathy for those working in the private sector yeah definitely and then I think when the you know lots of PBSAs do recruit um student type roles or resident type roles whatever title they give them they're nowhere near the ratios that they should be it's something that I've been vocal about over the years and I think it's, it's slowly changing depending on where and whom you work for a final question for me and Rob might have something to add on to this what can students bring to the table that other staff can't I think predominantly bring their student experience so whilst we have all been students and studied many a degree we're a little bit older and a little bit distant from what actual student experience is like you know when we're talking about even the terminology they use or the things that they're interested in we've seen it time and time again and it's quite often even one of the areas that our RAs or student staff are sometimes disappointed or disheartened in that the events that they think for residents want um, and they spend their time planning and putting effort and time into and one person or nobody or two people show up and that feels like a failure, which it absolutely isn't. But there is that having that connection, being a little bit more on the ground and able to understand what are the student needs, what are the real challenges. Um, but they too most recently have gone through a similar journey or experience to the students is invaluable compared to what we know from our experience that was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Or again, whilst there is absolutely a place in the foundations in the student development theory, it doesn't mean that we know what students are talking about or watching on TV or want to engage with fellow peers. So I think it is that experience that they bring invaluably to their role. Yeah, and no, I I just follow on from what Cheryl said that uh, it's 
I mean, I'm, uh, let's say, going in towards the late 40s. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I get the old, you know, what, you know, what do you want, old man, kind of thing when I come in the flat and start chatting to people. So, um, you know, and, and that's one of the, thing, the things about res life is we do have to be a bit nimble and we do have to change. And, you know, the student cohort that we have today is vastly different than, you know, even five, ten years ago. You know, they're drinking less, they're doing fewer drugs, they're more socially engaged and more uh, political. And, you know, and I think groups in residential life, if, if we are going to transition, help transition these students into university life and be educators, then we really have to, to keep listening to them and, and keep engaging with them. And, and our residential assistants are absolutely key to that and as being our link through that and, and maybe filtering in some more information to us that we wouldn't have known previously. So uh, that, that's the real key is it keeps us close to the students, know what's, what's kind of going on and how we might need to change our approach kind of going forward. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking um, 90 minutes out of your time, regardless of whether it was a regular day or in the middle of a global pandemic. I um, really appreciate it. There's some really fantastic insight that you shared there. And to be honest, I could talk to you for hours, but it's I'll probably reserve that for a conference sometime soon. So I don't know about you, Rob, but I thought that was an awesome chat. I know Christopher and Cheryl quite well because we work in similar areas in the sector and I don't know, but I, I just fangirl over them. I love what they do up in Bonnie, Scotland. <laughs> no, I think this podcast is turning into just recruiting as many people that Rebecca fangirls over. Because first it was Eric and now it's now it's Cheryl and Chris in Edinburgh. Uh, no, I know what you mean, though. And I can, I can kind of understand why they are really knowledgeable about their subject. And you can see how passionate they are. And you can hear it in their voice and, and you know, obviously the listeners didn't have the benefit of having webcams and, and seeing them when we were discussing about what we were going to talk about. And you can just tell the passion and the interest they have in their subjects and what they do. And I think it translates to their knowledge. You know, I think they're the kind of people that take everything about their role, whether that be theoretical, practical, educational, and they apply it all the time. It, it, you know, they, they don't take days off mentally from their role. They really seem engaged in it. And I think you can see that from the success they've had up in Edinburgh. Yeah, really the lovely mix of the education and the practical as well. You know, Cheryl talked a lot about, well, we all talked about the importance of the evidence base and you know, we referenced student development theory and a few other things like that. But also Cheryl did bring back, bring us back down to earth and say that actually the experience of the students really matters as well and what they can bring to the role and to never really underestimate that as well. I was also really impressed that they have um, an in-house mental health expert now. And I loved Christopher's approach to, you know, believing that your experts are in-house and bringing everything under one roof. That's pretty amazing to see in very forward thinking. You don't see an awful lot of that in the sector at the moment. No, that's very true. And I think it's something that we've kind of touched on a little bit before insofar as I think we in student affairs and student services are are amazing at our roles, but are not often the best salespeople of our own abilities. And we sometimes underestimate our own expertise. And I think that's where it's nice and refreshing to hear and to, to see people actually not do that and to really identify with the fact that their staff are the experts and that they have that knowledge and that experience because uh, ultimately it's true you know we all work in the sector and we all have our own areas of expertise yes but I think there's sometimes some outsourcing done and sometimes we we refer out and that can have its place but I do also think that as professionals we we need to kind of advocate for ourselves a little bit more so it was nice to hear that too that it is about a marriage of our own professional expertise as it is the student experience as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he listed a few things that they, in terms of training, they run in-house. And I think in previous positions, I would have certainly recruited or hired some experts or people who offer that service to train members of staff. And when he was talking about that, I thought, actually, I know a bit about this. Maybe I should have decided to create those training programs myself or had a stab of it at the very least and see what I come up with. Because like you said, sometimes you're kind of questioning your own ability and what you can and can do or what you can't do. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of imposter syndrome in all of us student affairs people. I think so. I think it's it's somewhat of a natural thing. I, I don't think it's the case for everybody. Obviously, everyone's different. But I do think to a certain degree, there is a bit of that. And I think that's where they've got this lovely marriage between professionals believing in their own abilities and utilizing their own abilities, but also the students backing them up with that. And I think that it does sound like they have a culture there where, yes, the staff are experts and really do push to recruit and really do look to bring students in. But it also sounds like over time, they've managed to build a community of students who invest in themselves. So as much as the student affairs staff are doing amazing work, it's almost self-sufficient to a strange degree that the students are working on it themselves. And when we're talking about student as staff and the experiences that people have with that and the challenges and the benefits, I think that's when you know you've hit a bit of a sweet spot with everything, when the students are kind of self-sustaining that if you can get to that stage then you know you've kind of achieved as a member of staff and you've kind of done the job you need to do when it becomes ticking over and, and motivational rather than completely operational 24 7. Yeah and also to understand and be okay with the fact that to get to that sweet spot it has taken them you know 10-12 years to get there. Often when you are setting up programs you're, when you want to recruit resident assistants or any student staff positions you're looking around you and seeing what everybody else is doing and kind of comparing yourself and thinking, well, that uni's better than me or that department's better than me. You have to sometimes put blinkers on and go, right, this is the vision that I have for my department and the roles that I want to have for these students and just focus on that and make that the best it can be and work on it year on year and hopefully make it bigger and better and hopefully the funding is there to do that. So it's very easy to look around and compare and go, oh, why can't we be like Edinburgh or, you know, insert X uni here? I've done that myself. Yeah, and, and that is so easy, you know, especially when and we're not going to get drawn into the conversation of, of competition in the sector. But I think that's the kind of a natural assumption that universities and staff make, because we are we are unfortunately in competition and, and we do have that competitiveness in the sector, rightly or wrongly, depending on how you feel about it. And I think that does lend yourself to kind of judging yourself against others and, and looking at others. And and as you just said, they will be the first to admit it takes years, years of, of practice, of getting things wrong, of not being afraid for things to fail, of things working and things not working. And again, same goes with students. It, it takes years of getting sometimes not quite the right student mix or students who haven't quite put the right effort in, but eventually it pays dividends and, and that's that's the motivation to keep going and it's admirable that they have been committed to something for that amount of time and that no matter what now it's just going to kind of keep snowballing on. So regardless if you are running a program or something similar or aspiring to whether you're a week or five weeks or a month or five years into doing that I think there was plenty in that episode for you to be inspired from and take little nuggets of information. Next up is episode number five, Ivra Cuig, as we say in Ireland for those of you who can understand Irish. Uh, Robert who is coming up next? 
Yeah, we've got a good episode lined up next. We're taking a slightly different tack to this episode and we're looking kind of at a broader depth of subjects, looking at widening participation primarily, but also around inclusion and diversity, social justice, all of those elements of higher education, those parts that you could kind of put under the WP bracket, so to speak. We have two guests lined up next week. We have Paula DL from Staffordshire University and Eric Guntz, who's coming from King's College London, joining us on the next episode. And they are both involved in those areas, both across whining participation, inclusion, equality, diversity. So it's going to be a really interesting discussion. It's going to be very much led with the kind of topics that they are seeing. And it's going to be very guest led, I think, this one. So it's going to be a really good episode. It's going to look into some crucial subject areas. And I think it's going to be even more important as time goes on, because we're only really seeing sort of gaps get wider and and things getting a lot harder. So it's going to be a really good one. I'm really looking forward to this. It's an area I'm very passionate about, and I know you are as well, Rebecca. So yes, it's going to be, a, I'm sure, a very passionate episode compared to some of the ones we've had so far. Yes, uh, really looking forward to chatting to both of them over the coming weeks. Um, but in the meantime, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support. And more than anything else, stay at home and stay safe. Stay safe.